Welcome to the Fod Eater Fod Path. <laughs> hey everybody, Froth here, Thought Eater Podcast and Blog. I hope you're doing well. Thank you very much for listening. Happy Tuesday to you. Got a little something different for the Top 3 Tuesday show today. It's not really RPG related. Well, there is a there is a call-in that's RPG related, but I'd gotten some call-ins about some music stuff and movie stuff, so... It's a little bit different. If you're listening to this to hear me ramble about games, it might not be the best episode, but if you like hearing me just ramble in in general, you might like it. Um, I do like to talk about music. Um, I don't get a lot of chance to do that recently. I, I just... I almost don't even follow new music anymore. I just kind of put it, I didn't put it out of my life. I still play the drums all the time, but I kind of, I, I, I kind of paused myself where I was at. I'll occasionally check something new out, but, uh, it's kind of like games. I got enough old stuff to last me forever. I don't know. I live in a music town and I used to be really immersed in the music scene and everything, but now it's like, uh, College town here, at least, a uh, first band, you know, it'll be like a three band bill. The first band doesn't go on till like 11. So the chances of me even being out to catch a band are slim to none, really. Um, and to see the headliner sometimes, you, you know, they don't start till like one o'clock. So no, can't remember the last time I was up till one. Call me crotchety, call me old, or whatever. So I'm completely out of the Athens music scene at this point, completely retired, but. Still, like I say, play music. I have done some recordings of songs that I've, I've, I've done, you know, a few, a few times in the last few years, but it's not something I really keep up with anymore. So, anyway, I don't know what that has to do with anything. <laughs> uh, but before we get started, I had a couple of quick call-ins. I got one uh, from Rich Frazier, legendary anchorite from Cockatrice Nuggets, talking about some horror movie stuff. And then I got one from Tim Shorts calling me out on my top three unused monsters. So let's listen to that. Hey, Froth, it's Rich. Damn, poltergeist. Oh, God, how old was I? I was like 10, I think. And we were watching it, damn, we were watching it like in a home. We didn't go see it in the theater. Uh, we were watching it on VHS and oh my God, that that uh, that guy peeling his face off, right? I just, oh man, that that, and I couldn't look at trees the same for like years after that. Oh, movie gave me nightmares for weeks. It's awful, so good. Love to go back and revisit that. Have a good one, Froth. Hey, Froth, Tim Shorts from Gothridge Manor here. I don't know, man. I, I'm, I'm gonna say you 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 cheated, man. I, I'm going to have to say your list is not valid. You used whole groups, man. Got to pick out three monsters, not like three categories. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, oh, all psionic creatures. I know psionic creatures are tough because nobody... I know we had one campaign where we used psionics. And it was so weird because it just didn't really seem to fit in with the game. It, I mean, we, we, we tried it. We had uh, uh, two characters playing it, and then some of the monsters were we had, you know, psionics, but that was odd. But still, I'm calling you out, man. I'm not sure. 
I can I can accept your list. So, all right, take care. All right. Well, first thing I want to say before we get into the call ins, I should have mentioned during the intro is I wanted to thank Colin Green from Spike Pit, Tim from Gothridge Manor, and Ivy the Happy Whisk. They all called in and left little happy birthday messages for my daughter. Uh, and I thought that was so nice, y'all. And I played them to her. And she, you know, I think she felt like a minor celebrity here. And thank you wishes from people that don't know her and stuff. So appreciate y'all doing that. That was cool. Really cool of y'all. So thank you. And uh, Rich, yeah, I mean, Poulter, I mean, every part of that movie's great, really. Um, but yeah, definitely makes you not look at trees the same way. Or swimming pools. You see swimming pool getting built. I always have a little something in the back of my mind. But, um, all right, so Tim's calling me out. You know what, Tim? You know, you know what? Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> but I thought of, you know, I fra- sometimes I frame these as how I think it'll be interesting to talk about them. And for, well, let me defend myself on demons and devils a little bit. You know, they have this whole hierarchy and they're all like, you know, interrelated and there's politics between them and stuff. So, you know, using them all together makes sense to me. Sci- the psionic stuff. Yeah, you're, you're right. I shouldn't have just said all psionics, but you know, my point was not using psionic player characters. Then at least by the rules of the other psionic character, you know, the psionic monsters don't really do much unless they just do their whatever or mind blast, mind thrust attack, psionic blast, whatever it is. Um, but for you, let me clarify. I'll pick one psionic monster then, and I'll pick one demon or devil. So for the psionic monster, I've already u- I used mind flares before. I hadn't used the thought eater, but you know what I would probably use, going back and reading through some of the psionic ones, the little brain mole. The, you know, the lowly brain mole, <laughs> one hit point. And the thing about this one is I might be able to use it without having a player with psionics. Cause it says it's attracted not just to psionics, but also to psionic like spells. So maybe one of the players casts ESP or something like that. I can have the little brain mole pop out and, and, and mess with them. So yeah, I'll put the brain mole there if I gotta get specific. I've never used a brain mole, but who has? Anybody out there ever used a brain mole? But yeah, I'd like to throw a brain mole out there. You know, more than just if only to show them the picture from the monster manual, the little brain mole with like the little zigzags around. It's like here comes the brain mole. <laughs> and uh, as far as a demon or devil, I'll go with Orcus. You know, you got that wand of death. All you got to do is touch somebody and kill them. Plus, there's a chance I might be able to get Orcus in a game because I've got Rapanathic, and I think Orcus is like the big bad at the end of that. You know, there was a fourth edition adventure path that dealt with Orcus, but I, I to get through 30 levels on that, I, I, there's probably still people trying to play through that thing. Combat probably took them so long. Once they got up to higher levels, unless you house ruled it, but so yeah, Tim called me out probably rightly so, but like I say, I was trying to make something fun to listen to, but if I had to pick one psionic creature, I'll pick the lowly one hit point brain mole demon or devil. I'll go with Orcus 
if only to uh, strike the players down in one blow with that wand of death. All right, so on to the show. We got some, uh, like I say, some music-related stuff, some movie-related stuff. First, uh, I got a call in from Mr. Yoder. Hey, Froth. Uh, just finished listening to Liren's, uh Creativity Tuesday. That's some awesome drumming you're doing there. Uh, you know, uh, I may be easy to impress when it comes to drums, but nah, I don't think so. But, uh, yeah, that's cool. Um, maybe another uh, top three. You could do uh, top three uh, punk bands or something. Maybe Rockabilly. I don't know. So... Take care, and uh, happy drumming. Mr. Yoder there from Random Encounters in the Library, legendary Anchorite podcasting here on Anchor. Asking about punk bands, that's something I like to talk about. I know I talked on the Audio Dungeon Discord a little bit about a great book, um, if you're into not only the New York punk scene, but um, English punk scene, um, Please Kill Me great book it's all done interview styles so it's all in people's own words and it kind of does the lead in to that era and everything because that, that was something i was going to talk about you know when you ask about punk bands there's not a lot of punk bands that really like to be called punk bands you know and some will just outright, outright tell you that they're not punk and then some um sometimes it's hard to think about the you know what what's the line you know i guess some people say i think it was like legs mcneil had some zine in new york called punk that people will say kind of gave the the title punk to things and uh, and then of course it became faddish and by that time you know I, I remember when i was younger i had the chipmunk punk album and it was like alvin and the chipmunks covering my sharona <laughs> so uh you know punk quickly became uh kind of a faddish thing i don't know you think about uh, that one Star Trek where they're in, they come into the modern day and they're they're on the bus with like the guy with the mohawk or whatever. Uh, it lost that kind of sense of danger pretty quick, I guess. I don't know. So what I thought I'd do is give my top three bands that kind of led to punk, and then the top three bands that top three punk bands. So, and again, some of these, you know, I don't know where you draw the, you know, draw the line sometimes with it. It's kind of what you, it's almost like what you perceive as the OSR. Like for me, I consider like Traveler and, um, Warhammer Fantasy First Edition and all that. Like I'd include that in the OSR. Other people are really like, it's got to be something based around D&D or hack of D&D or whatever. So, you know, looking at punk's kind of like that. But anyway, let's talk about top three bands that kind of led to punk. Number three, I'm going to go with Velvet Underground. Now, if if Velvet Underground had a bunch of other albums as good as their first one, uh, Velvet Underground and Nico, then, um, then they may, may be number one. But it was kind of, for me, it's diminishing returns with the Velvet Underground, even though they'll have a few good songs. But that first album, oh, lordy. Talk about something different. And uh, I've heard it said, you know, they maybe sold 10,000 records, but every single person that bought it formed a band. Probably true. 
Uh, but that is just an unusual album. So many great songs on there. Really every song. Um, it's got that Lou Reed street poetry thing going on. There's a lot of like fuzz and distortion that who knows what was on purpose and what was accidental with the, the quality of the recording. But the one song on there that, that really gets me is a Black Angel's Death song. It's almost like uh, Bob Dylan meets the Jesus and Mary Chain or something. Uh, you know, heavy distortion drone um just i remember the first time hearing that uh, i have to admit i was a little let's just say my mind was a little expanded at the time that i heard it and i was thinking to myself does it really sound like this or like is this you know is this deliberate you know i was having questions in my mind like and then i listened back to it later and yes it was deliberate so I don't know, more that's been written about the Velvet Underground than than, uh, than I would ever be able to cover in this, but uh, let's just say, say that first that first uh that first Velvet Underground album is uh is what I'm putting at number three of my top band, you know, top albums, top bands that led to punk. Number two, New York Dolls. Love the New York Dolls. When I was younger and I first heard the New York Dolls, is because I, I like Morrissey and I heard Morrissey like the New York Dolls. This is before I knew anything about. This was a long time ago, before I knew anything about the New York punk scene or, or any you know New York music scene in the seventies or anything like that. I just had heard of the New York Dolls, um, and when I listened to it, I thought it was crappy. So at that time I was kind of more into, I was like, like into Brit pop and stuff where it's really, it was really precise and tight and how tight you were was a, a sign of how good you were. And I was, I don't want to say I was a prude and, or whatever, holier than thou attitude about music, but in some ways we did look at ourselves as competing. It was, you know, a time that we looked at ourselves as competing with other bands rather than being really, uh, you know, friends and part of a scene or whatever we were, you know that mindset i think we were kind of influenced by the stone roses with the arrogance and that kind of attitude at the time so i just didn't get the new york dolls when i heard it it sounded like a even sloppier rolling stones with a, somebody that couldn't sing i didn't get it later i was able to appreciate it and then i realized how great they were um just unabashed rock and roll but with tons of attitude just it's amazing for attitude to be able to, you know, make it down on the tapes, but it's not that they played that well, but it's really the, the, the whole being greater than the, you know, this, whatever the sum of the parts. Um, and then, you know, reading about them and, 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 uh, and everything, uh, I got to go with the New York dolls. I know how much they influenced everything. David Johansson, there's a great, um, great documentary on their basis too. uh, Arthur killer Kane, how he went to, you know, he had, he had a lot of alcohol problems and then ended up being this like a librarian working out a lot, like a Mormon library for most of the rest of his life before the New York dolls reunited. And that's a great documentary. I don't have the name of it in front of me, but, and then I like Johnny thunders, um, quite a bit, another tragic figure, but, um, you know, those first two albums are great. Um, really great. So if you like kind of sleazy, sloppy rock and roll, 
You might check out the New York Dolls and see what you think, but that definitely influenced punk music, so I'm going to put the Dolls at number two. And my number one kind of proto-punk band is the Stooges, Iggy and the Stooges, the first self-titled, Funhouse, and uh, Search and Destroy, those first three albums, fantastic. And then even uh, Iggy Pop's first couple of solo albums that Bowie produced, uh, Lust for Life and The Idiot, those are both classics. Like, if you've never heard uh, Iggy Pop's version of uh, China Girl, you know, I've just heard David Bowie's, you know, it's got a whole, you know, um, oh, I said Search and Destroy, Raw Power. It's got a raw power to it, just like the Raw Power album. But it's amazing to me to think that the Stooges, that first album was 1969. That's, that's just wild to me that to think that there was something in the 60s that sounded like that so definitely with the stage antics and the the attitude and the just the sound the rawness um they you know some people might would probably call them a punk band but i'm just going to say that they influence punk so those are my top three leading up to punk velvet underground new york dolls iggy and the stooges top three punk bands hmm Number three, I'm going with the Sex Pistols. Sex Pistols captured me and my friends' imaginations when we discovered them uh, in the early 80s. These were our skateboarding days, and we loved it. I mean, we immediately, we played it all the time, skateboarding. We learned the songs and played them in our bands and everything. We spray paint Sex Pistols on skateboard ramps. We loved it. We loved Johnny Rotten. We didn't know, I mean, this was pre-internet, so we didn't know anything about controversy in England with them and we didn't know anything about Sid Vicious I mean I think we ended up seeing that Sid Nancy movie years later but we didn't know any anything about them you know even other bands you know going into like the early 90s you just knew if you liked it and you knew what was in the album you didn't know anything about you know the band from the you know there's no internet or anything like that you might see something in a magazine maybe but Sex Pistols had that had a catchiness to them, and then uh, and then reading about them later, it's 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 they're you know fascinating. But that never mind the bollocks is just classic, always will be to me. How can you not put the Sex Pistols in your top three? I don't I don't, I don't see how that that could how it's possible. So I'm putting Sex Pistols number three. We loved it from beginning to end. We listened to that album over and over. Um, number two, I'm going with the Ramones. I love the Ramones. Even even albums that are said to be the Ramones' worst albums, like the one they did with Phil Spector, I guess it's uh, End of the Century. I think that's the name of it. Even like the Ramones' worst albums I enjoy. Because I just like, well, for one thing, I love Dee Dee. And then I love Joey. I love his voice. I um, love his inflection and the way he phrases things. Like, you know, don't go down to the basement. You know something down there hey Romeo don't go down to the basement uh, yeah and uh, that's another one where the first time I heard them I loved them because I think it was I Want to Be Sedated was the first Ramon song I heard either that or like Beat on the Brat and I was like oh yeah this is perfect so I even like a lot of like I say a lot of the later stuff like I even like the Pet Cemetery song <laughs> I mean I like uh Bonzo goes to Bitburg. That's a great song. So yeah, the Ramones, 
and that now they're definitely a punk band. I don't think anybody would dispute that. They probably call themselves punks. So there's another. There's a great Ramones documentary. If you've never seen End of the Century and want to see, it's got all its kinds of great footage, interviews, and it's really really well done. So um, there was actually a pretty good Sex Pistols documentary not too many years ago too. But I forget the name of it. Anyway, both those bands have had tons written about them. Um, but anyway, the uh, the Ramones are going for my number two. My number one punk band of all time. And now I should have, before I tell it, I should say that I don't know if the cramps are considered punk. So I left the cramps out of here. I know Yoder, I heard you mention the cramps. I love the cramps. They're kind of their own thing. They're not really rockabilly, not really punk. I don't know what you'd call them. Just kind of sleaze rock or something. If they're punk, they would have gone in here somewhere, but I'm, I'm leaving the cramps out. My number one punk band, The Misfits. Oh, yes. Glenn Danzig and The Misfits. Too many good songs to mention. So much humor. All the B-movie stuff, all the horror movie stuff. Too much horror business, driving late at night. Psycho 78, my mirrors are black. You don't go in the bathroom with me. Or with you, I put a knife right in you. Anybody, anybody that likes the Misfits will know what I'm talking about right there. You just want to just blast it. Love the Misfits. Of course, after Danzig left, whatever it is now, not into it. I like Sam Hain. I like some Danzig solo stuff, but that give me the Misfits. I've got the coffin box set. It's got everything in there. Uh, Teenagers from Mars, hybrid moments. Uh, oh my, too many songs, too many songs, too many songs. We used to skateboard to that stuff too. So, yeah, I mean, you either get it or you don't. Like I say, there's a lot of humor to it. A lot of callbacks to B movies, fifties, you know, you know, fifties and sixties schlock horror and everything. Uh, to me, the Misfits are the ultimate, ultimate punk band. So anyway, rambled about that enough. That's what I got for you, Yoder, on the punk on the punk front. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Froth, how you doing, man? Uh, just calling in. I've realised I'm probably pushing my luck here, but. Uh... I would be very interested to hear about your top three drummers now that we've uh, we've heard you live and uh, in action. It would be very cool to yeah hear some drum chat, man, or whatever you drummer types call that stuff. <laughs> Is it drum chat? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, take it easy, man. Really loving your stuff. All right, Colin from Spike Pit there. Thanks for the call-in. And I, I looked it up during the break. The Sex Pistol documentary that I was talking about is The Filth and the Fury. It's fantastic. So if you're interested in more about Sex Pistols, check that out. If you're interested in The Ramones, check out Into the Century. Both are fantastic documentaries. So, yeah, favorite drummers, good question. I will say, in, in the same way I was, I was talking about my favorite guitarist, you know, talent... You know, technical skill isn't everything. I like the attitude and everything too. But in thinking about this, I did want to think about drummers that actually were on more than one record, you know, because um, 
Well, because to get into a couple drummers like that technically aren't very talented, but they played perfectly for what it was. Like Mo Tucker, what she did on uh, Velvet Underground, especially the first stuff. I think she just like had like a floor tom and a tom tom, and not even had a snare on some of the songs. You know, it was very crude. Maybe uh, even a child could have, you know, kind of played along like she did. And I actually met her once. Her daughter lived in Athens, uh, and met her at a bar one time, and got her got her autograph. I was like, "Holy crap!" I like, "Excuse me, it might sound weird, but..." Are you Mo Tucker from the Velvet Underground? And there she was in this dive bar that we used to do karaoke at. And it was just Mo Tucker sitting there. But no one could have, no other, if, if you'd had a great drummer on there, it wouldn't have felt good. The, the, it wouldn't have been the same, you know? It was played exactly what it had to be. And if it was, if it was a technically skilled drummer on some of that stuff, it would have been terrible. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to anybody. Sometimes, you know, sometimes a lack of technical skill is exactly what a song needs. Yeah, it's kind of like Misfits or whatever, you know, like I was just talking about. You know, part of what's good is that there's a little sloppiness to it. Another great one-album drummer, Bobby Gillespie, who went on to, to fame with Primal Scream um, in, in England, played on Psycho Candy, the first Jesus and Mary Chain album. And Jesus and Mary Chain really originated and, you know, kind of made that shoegaze wall of distortion sound, that first Psycho Candy album. I remember, one reason I remember that album so distinctly, well, first of all, I saw him play that album, but um, that was what we li we listened to that one night when we played D&D, &D, and we played D&D &D all night long one night. And it was, I borrowed that Psycho Candy tape from a friend, and I played it from one end of the tape, flipped it, played it back, Flipped it, played it again, flipped it, played it back. Love it, love it, love it. And that's one where it's just a kick and a snare. There's no cymbals. There's no hi-hat. There's no nothing. It's a kick and a snare. And it is one of the best drum performances <laughs> to me of all time. But they switched to a drum machine and, you know, he went on to Primal Scream. So it was just that one album. So anyway, I'm just giving you an idea. Like technical skill is not important to me, you know. It's the what feels right for the music and, and, and everything else. But, you know, I am going to talk about some technically skilled drummers. It's just the point is it's whatever is right for the music, I guess is what I'm saying. And so number three, we've talked about the police before, talking about guitarists. Now I'm um, talking about Stuart Copeland from the police. Love Stuart Copeland. So original, touches of reggae. Master of the hi-hat. If you ever hear, want to hear anybody that can just mangle and destroy the hi-hat and just play it so perfectly. Um, so many great songs, obviously, by the police. But I love Stuart Copeland. Love, love, love. Uh, listen to Synchronicity 2, what he's doing there. Um, uh, wrapped Around Your Finger. I mean, all the early stuff on to the old. He was always great. Um, so... And such an original style, um, like I say, bringing that kind of reggae feel to it, and just what he d does with the hi hats, um, he's just he's just fantastic. And I think like when they bro police broke up or whatever, you know, Sting had complained about his drumming, or there was some, you know, and I'm thinking, Sting, come on now, let's get real, because <laughs> Stuart Copeland's amazing. 
I don't know. I'd, I'd have to look back at that, but it seemed like there was something where Stuart Copeland said in an interview that Sting was complaining about his drums or something like that. And I'm thinking, what? Sting really had lost, you know, stuff had really gone to Sting's head if you're complaining about Stuart Copeland's drumming. It's number three, Stuart Copeland. Number two, Phil Collins. And you're probably thinking, what? You know, because most people think Genesis, they probably think, she seems to have that invisible touch. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about going back to the Peter Gabriel stuff. I'm talking about Supper's Ready. I'm talking about the Foxtrot album. I'm talking about Selling England by the Pound. I'm talking about uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. People talk about prog rock, you know, progressive rock. And I know for a lot of people, they probably will say uh, King Crimson's their favorite or Yes or, you know, whatever. Give me the early Genesis with Peter Gabriel singing and Phil Collins murdering the drums. Um, I don't think people know they hear this, the Phil Collins, you know, whatever, AM radio style annoying, you know, ballads or whatever. You don't realize how hard Phil Collins rocked on the drums on those albums. And, uh, those are some of the most technically amazing albums and just melodic. I love Peter Gabriel. got everything Peter Gabriel ever did. And uh, those early albums, like the Supper's Ready, is like a, um, it's like a 30-minute song or 20-something-minute song. And it's got some bits that are in timeless signatures that uh, I can't even ba barely keep a beat in, and Phil Collins is just... Uh, just murdering it. So if you guys want to really hear, um, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, huh, what is he talking about? Phil Collins on drum. You want to, you want to hear some great drumming. Just look up supper's ready by Genesis. Get yourself a glass of water, get somewhere quiet where you don't, you're not going to get bothered for the entire length of it and listen to that entire song. And when you get done with it, I think you'll agree with me. Phil Collins, one of the best drummers of all time. And my number one drummer of all time, I'm going with Ringo. Yeah. People dog on Ringo. You know, people say Ringo's a weak drummer. Well, I think they're out of their minds saying that. Ringo is an awesome drummer. Ringo played perfect on the Beatles. So many iconic little moments and little fills and everything that, like I say, if it had been some, you know, awesome, technically proficient, Neil Peart, you know, if it was Neil Peart playing on the Beatles, it wouldn't sound good. It just wouldn't. It wouldn't fit it. And one of the things that people don't realize that much about the Beatles and just a lot of early bands, um, you know, recording in the early 60s into the mid 60s and everything, especially the Beatles, like, you know, a lot of the time John and, and, and Paul would have a song and they'd bring it in and they'd just rehearse it, you know, just a few times and then record it. And those are the recordings you hear. It wasn't this long like it is nowadays or when I was playing in bands where we practiced the song, you know, for months and months and months over. This was almost like sometimes George Harrison or Ringo's first or second time, you know, first time hearing it second or third time playing it through. And so a lot of it's just improv, you know, imp improvisation or, you know, this, you know, two or three times to get something together on it. And then that's what's down on the tape. And that makes it even more incredible to me. So just great feel for songs, great feel for songs. He never overplayed. Um, gave the songs exactly what they needed. And then of course the drum sounds are so good. And that a lot of that I know is George Martin, but 
the drum sounds are so good because you listen to other stuff recorded in those days in that era and it just does not sound as good the mix isn't as good whatever of course they're the beatles so they had the, the best of the best but for the production quality for the the feel of the music for the not overplaying for the wonderful fills that so many people imitate the wonderful tom fills um for everything uh and for just personality and everything else for me number one drummer of all time is ringo thanks for the call in colin hey froth uh, spencer here with a top three for you um I thought I might, might try and make things a little bit easier, narrow the field. It might seem like a strange question, but um, what are your top three films of 1983? So that's Free Thrall there from Keep Off the Borderlands, one of the, you know, another legendary Anchorite podcast here on Anchor. Um, one, you know, with a relatively new podcast, you definitely want to go and check that out. So thanks for calling. And you know what I like about this question is one of the ways that I'm able to kind of date times in my life is by movies. Like I know Raiders of Lost Ark was 1981. I wasn't old enough to go see it in the movie theater, but I remember that's, I, I can, I can tell 1981, um, from Raiders of Lost Ark, um, one important movie that I use for um, for measuring time is E.T. because E.T. is 1982. So whenever I think back of what what I was doing or how old I was, where I lived, and all that kind of stuff, I can use E.T. to tell me to take me to 1982. In a similar way, 1985, uh, Back to the Future, because that was the year and that summer my parents got divorced and I moved to Marietta. But, and so, um, back to the future was one of the last movies that I saw where, when I still lived in Alabama before I moved. So, um, anyway, I, I do, I do music the same way. That's how I have, you know, 1984 in my mind is like the best year for music, at least as far as popular music goes. I'm sure everybody thinks that the years when they were young were that way, but thinking back about it, you know, you had, Duran Duran, Prince, Madonna, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, um, you know, Billy Ocean and Culture Club all on the charts at once. You know what I'm saying? When, when else? There's no other time in history that you're going to have that diverse, uh, you know, a top 20, you know, top 10 countdown or something as 1984. I just think that was a quintessential 80s year and I love 80s music, but I digress a little bit. So 1983. A couple immediately popped in my mind because I knew, knew they were 1983, including my number one, which is really my number one movie of all time, happens to be in 1983, so that's another reason I was happy to get the call. Um, but then I thought about it. I knew that's when Return of the Jedi came out, and I think a lot of people would want to put that in there. I do love Return of the Jedi, but maybe if you'd asked me in 1983, it, it would have been there, but, but I'm not putting in my top three now. And then there are a lot of other great movies. Cause I, then I just looked back, you know, 1983 was a great year for movies. So first of all, you had uh, Mr. Mom, which is hilarious crawl, which I saw in the movie theaters, which is kind of crappy, but it was awesome. Then, um, video drone, which is one of my favorite horror movies, David Cronenberg, uh, it's got Debbie Harry in there. Um, really weird. Uh, I'm a big fan of David Cronenberg stuff. Um, something wicked this way comes. That's a 
one that I loved when I was little. It was kind of a spooky movie that uh, Disney produced based on a Ray Bradbury novel that, um, you know, was still, you know, kids could see it, you know what I mean? But, and still walk away from it, you know, a little, uh, I don't know, freaked out or whatever. Uh, I even thought about Strange Brew, you know, uh, with the McKenzie brothers from SCTV. Anybody saw that where, um, it's got Max von Sydow in it. And, um, I don't know if anybody's seen it. <laughs> if anybody's seen Strange Brew, it's got Canadian humor that I probably didn't get all the Canadian humor, but I definitely got, you know, just the, you know, them being, you know, just loving beer and just kind of stumbling into this mystery about the brewery and everything. So Strange Brew, that's kind of a, kind of a minor classic. But, um, so anyway, though, for number three, I got to give it to a Christmas story. I don't know how big this one is in other countries, but Christmas story is a classic here in the States. Saw it at the movie theater. Um, saw it with my grandfather actually. And, uh, we all were laughing our butts off at that one. And then ended up, you know, it ends up a classic now where they play it all day long on Christmas. You surely see it every Christmas, you know, so many great moments, um, uh, you know, from the lamp fragile, foreign and, um, Scott Farkas, uh, the, I tried showing it to my daughter, but when the kid gets his tongue stuck on the pole, Flick gets his tongue stuck on the pole. She wasn't having that. She, that was a, she was maybe three or four when I showed it to her. So she wasn't old enough yet to get, you know, the humor of, of someone else's pain. <laughs> it was so sweet. I thought it was so sad and so sweet how she reacted to that. But, you know, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. I don't know. To me, it's just an iconic movie. One that I've seen a billion times, you know, see it every Christmas, but I'll still, when it comes on on a Christmas, I'll definitely watch Christmas story again. So, uh, you know, number three, I had to give it to a Christmas story. Number two, National Lampoon's Vacation, Chevy Chase. It's so sad that like, I'm like one of the older people now, you know, at my job, I'm like the old guy, you know, I've got coworkers that Cause so many of these old movies, you know, it informed my humor so much that I'll make quotes from you know, like airplane, you know, it looks like I picked the wrong wheat, quit sniffing glue. You know, they've never seen airplane. They don't know what the hell I'm talking about. They've never seen it. Never seen airplane. They've never seen Fletch. They don't really know who Chevy Chase is, but national lampoons vacation. Oh, such a classic. So funny. The Griswolds, you know, trying to get to Wally world. Obviously spawned a lot of sequels, but that first one's the best. I mean, I, you know, I, it's probably politically incorrect as hell at this point. I don't know. You know, so many of these movies, I'm sure to, to uh, a newer generation might not play the same, but for me, vacation's a classic. Now, of course I wasn't old enough to go see it in the movie theater back then. I just have to, I remember my dad coming home and talking about how great it was and them going out because they'd go out, you know, we have a babysitter when my mom and dad would go out to, to the movies and they'd always be going to see some, some movie I wanted to see like Raiders Lost Ark or uh, vacation. But when I did see it, I actually was able to see European vacation. I saw that before that I saw 
regular vacation because European vacation, I think came out in 85 and I believe it was rated PG 13, but I was allowed to go see it. Um, so, but anyway, I love Chevy Chase, huge Chevy Chase fan. So, um, vacation, if you've never seen the original vacation, I don't know what to tell you, rent it and watch it. Maybe it's not as funny to some people now, but that will always be a classic to me. Um, so that's what I'm going for, for number two. And the number one, this is actually, I, sometimes I kind of want to put Young Frankenstein in the number one spot or Blazing Saddles, maybe more Young Frankenstein as my number one favorite movie of all time. But I think this still gets the edge. So my number one movie for 1983 and my number one movie of all time, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Some people will prefer Holy Grail or even Life of Brian, but I give me the meaning of life from the beginning, you know, crimson permanent assurance, you know, to it's Christmas in heaven, um, at the end, love it, laugh all the way through it. And probably nothing made me laugh harder when I was younger than the whole gross out Mr. Creer. So, you know, get me a, get me another bucket. I'm going to throw up that whole sequence. Watched it over and over on VHS. Loved it. Um, but so many parts, I'd still quote, you know, a tiger in Africa. I love it. Uh, big Monty Python fan, and to me, that's the pinnacle. Like I say, I I love uh, Holy Grail, love Life of Brian, love all the sketch stuff. Um, you know, they did that one great compilation sketch movie, and now for something completely different. All that's great. Love a lot of the stuff they've done individually afterwards, but my favorite is The Meaning of Life. Get another, we need one of those machines that goes ping. It's got that song about the universe in the, in the middle with Eric Idle. Um, uh, so many great moments. But Mr. Creuso, that's my favorite, you know. Um, yeah, mix it all in the bucket. And don't skip on the pate. Oh, monsieur, just because it is all mixed up in a bucket, we would never dream of giving you the, you know, less than the full amount. You know, It's only a waffer thin whenever somebody's too full to eat. And they're like, no, no, I'm stuffed, I'm stuffed. Oh, it's only a waffer thin. Anyway, that's another movie that kind of reminds me of my dad because I remember my mom and dad going to see that and he loved that movie so much. He bought like this Monty Python meaning of life book that had all these pictures from it or whatever. And I remember looking through that and then he got it on VHS and we were allowed to see it. And me and my brother watching that movie, watched it a million times. And now I've got it on DVD, obviously when my dad was actually dying a few years ago and I was over, you know, visiting with him, I had bought the meaning of life cause I knew how much he loved those movies and bought that form to, to watch. So that's, that's my number one for 1983 and my number one movie of all time, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. All right, so that was a fun show for today. I know I'm just, a lot of this is just me rambling off, you know, all of this actually, just me ram, rambling off the cuff and everything. So hopefully you found it entertaining. You know, what makes it cool is to hear back from y'all y'all's opinions too so if anybody remember those those 1983 movies i mean they were a bunch that was the year like james bond uh they 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 had competing companies doing james bond so sean connery came back for never say never again while uh roger moore was doing octopussy saw both of those in the movie theaters remember that distinctly um 
Uh, Dead Zone was another good one. Another Cronenberg movie that same year. Uh, War Games. Um, we saw that at the theater. I remember that. It's a great movie. Risky Business. Twilight Zone, the movie. Overall wasn't great, but it had that great sequence with like the kid that can do stuff with his mind and everything. That was, that was pretty good. And uh, Outsiders, Trading Places, Scarface, Big Chill. That's one that I wouldn't have gotten back then, but that's a great movie. So, yeah, just looking through 1983, that's lots of classics that year. So, anybody got some favorite movies from 1983, favorite drummers, punk bands, anything like that, want to chime in, call in, and I'll put you on the show. Uh, anybody have any top three ideas, gaming-related or otherwise, You know, just give me a call, and I'll be happy to ramble about it. Sure appreciate people listening. Thank you to the callers calling in today. Y'all made the show better. Um, made, you made the show, really, so thank you for that. And again, I wanted to thank Colin, Tim, and the Whisk, again, for their kind calls, call-ins, wishing my daughter a happy birthday. That was really thoughtful of y'all, and I appreciated that tremendously. So, Like I say, call in with some ideas on the Anchor app, or you can message me uh, on Gmail, frothsoft, frothsof at gmail.com. Check out the Thought Eater blog, frothsoftfrothsofdnd.blogspot.com. Sure do appreciate folks backing me on Patreon, Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Thought Eater. Let's see. So yeah, Hump Day Bloggerama is coming up next. So I haven't started putting it together yet. I've just been setting aside stuff as I saw it all week, but I'm sure we're going to have another good show. So I look forward to doing that. Logan, get us out of here. Let's go. Sickly platypus, a psychic grenade Zeroing in on your mental trade Gonna help you escape from the grind Thought eater gonna blow your mind